Well, good morning, and uh, as Jake said, it's great to see you. And um, if you are visiting, again, welcome. Just to let you know what we're doing, we, we like when we can to work through uh, books of the Bible and uh, in, the, in the preaching and the sermons. So this winter and the spring, we're in the book of Romans, going to hopefully continue to be so for a while, take a break during the summer, but continue on until we study the whole book. This is uh, from the New Testament. This is by the Apostle Paul. It's a long letter or an epistle. And this morning we're in chapter 5. So if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Uh, the, the text I'm going to preach from is there in the bulletin. So Romans 5, beginning in verse 1. You know, one of the things that uh, is that's good for us to do individually, but it's something that it's good for us to do when we come together and we worship and we study God's Word, is to, to, to slow down and really look at just the sentences, the phrases, the words, because all this matters. And, uh, and the Bible's not that thick, you know. It's, it's well, depending on your version of it, it's, it's that thick. So all these things matter. And uh, one observation before we read this passage for you to think about, if you get up over the book of Romans, kind of a bird's-eye view, it's interesting to look at how the pronouns flow. At the beginning of the book, you get a lot of the pronoun I, and that's the Apostle Paul sort of introducing himself and starting off and saying, you know, here's who I am, and I'm writing to you, and here's what I'm excited about. And then uh, you get a lot of you, second person, and, and it's really when he starts off saying, all right, before I tell you what the good news is, what's the bad news? And when he talks about the bad news, a lot of it is using the pronoun you. You know, what about you? And uh, you get to this passage in chapter 5, and, if, and again, if you're visiting, after we had a while in the bad news, what, 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 what's the bad news about sinners? What's the bad news about people who disobey God? People like us, not somebody out there, but what about us? We're really in the, in the good news now in this book. And in this passage, Paul really starts to imbibe with the word uh, we. And that's interesting because on, on the one hand, sometimes when he's talking, he really has his apostle hat on. And he has that on the whole time. But I mean that he's saying things that are unique to him. That Like, I can say this to you because I'm one of Jesus' apostles. But when he says we, what, he, what he's saying is this is the experience, not just of the special you know, inner ring. This is the experience of Christians. Now, one other thing before I read this... Uh, a word that has been incredibly important in this study. And, and this is a word that if, if you visited just this morning and you never came back, I would want you to know this word because it's not a Presbyterian word. It's not a denominational word. It's a Bible word. And the word is justification. And it really, and that's a long word, but that, that word, big in Romans, it's really at the heart of what we mean by the good news, the gospel. And justification is simply this. It's not because of what a sinner has done, not because of what some disciplined religious person has done through his or her efforts, but by the mercy of God that he declares somebody who's disobedient to him to be righteous. He declares somebody, strictly speaking, who is guilty to no longer be guilty and not just to have now absence of guilt, but to be accepted and welcomed 
in relationship with God, not just tolerated and sent away, but, but loved and accepted and pardoned forever, not because of what the sinner did, but because of what Jesus did for sinners. Justification. And the reason I bring that up again, I mean, we need to hear that over and over, but, but before I read this, what Paul is saying is, what do justified people have? Very important. He's not, he's not saying, hey, what do we aspire to accomplish? You know, if we dig deep and focus and get our game face on, what could we have? He's saying, what do justified people have right now? And how could that affect your experience? Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I read an article about a month ago, and um, it was written by a guy who was reflecting back on when he was a sort of a freelance writer journalist in the 80s, and he was living in the Santa Fe area, and he was contacted about uh, the Dalai Lama was coming to visit the United States and was going to be visiting the Santa Fe area, and could he sort of be in that, um, you know, kind of that cadre of people that travel around with him, and while he was in the Santa Fe area, just write about it, just, just you know, be a journalist and record what happened. And so uh, he did, and, and this article that I read was just him reflecting back on, on what it was like and what he saw and what he heard, and one of the things that the Dalai Lama wanted to do was he wanted to go skiing, and, you know, ski resorts in the Santa Fe area, and uh, there's all this, you know, like, should we do that? And they just said, hey, if the Dalai Lama wants to ski, the Dalai Lama gets to ski. So they took him skiing, and this journalist named Douglas Preston was with him, and he said there was this uh, very interesting moment when they came off the slopes. He said that there was just a lot of surprising things that this man said, that, you know, you think about him just only talking about the esoteric. 
But he, he talked about how the mountains reminded him of Tibet. He wondered if areas of Tibet could ever be developed to have a resort like this. You know, it's interesting. But they come down, and uh, after they've skied, they go to a little cafe, a little restaurant to eat. And he records this incident. He says that as we finished our meal, a young waitress with tangled, dirty blonde hair and a beaded headband began clearing our table. And she stopped to listen to the conversation and finally sat down, abandoning her work. After a while, when there was a pause, she spoke to the Dalai Lama. You didn't like your cookie? Not hungry. Thank you. And when, he, when he quotes the Dalai Lama, he records that sort of English as a second language way of talking. So, not hungry. Thank you. Can I... Um, ask a question, please. She spoke with complete seriousness. What is the meaning of life? And Douglas Preston said everyone froze because he said that was the question that no one had asked. And everybody had kind of skirted around the big things and asked him about politics or spirituality or the outdoors or whatever. And this waitress kind of walked up and just went boop and asked the ultimate question. In my entire week with the Dalai Lama, every conceivable question had been asked except this one. There was a brief stunned silence. The Dalai Lama, it's funny to say the words Dalai Lama over and over and over. The Dalai Lama answered immediately, the meaning of life is, let's close in prayer. Just kidding. Uh, the, the meaning of life is Happiness. He raised his finger, leaning forward, focusing on her as if she were the only person in the world. Hard question is not, what is the meaning of life? That is easy question to answer. No, hard question is what makes happiness. This is question all human beings must try to answer. What makes true happiness? He gave this last question a peculiar emphasis and then fell silent, gazing at her with a smile. Thank you, she said. She got up and finished stacking the dirty dishes and took them away. It's really interesting. I'm just amazed by that exchange. And though I would approach it differently, though historically Christianity would approach the answer to the question differently, he was on to something. And biblically, the kind of language you, you, you find uh, is not so much like what, what, quote, makes someone happy. I mean, you, do, you see references in the Bible to happiness or people being happy. But, but especially in the New Testament, it's not going to so much frame things in terms of what makes you happy. The kind of language that you would expect to see would be, what do you rejoice in? And that's not religious necessarily, religious language, like, you know, you're in this kind of religious, sort of pious, sort of joyful expression, you know, is it something, or something that's churchy, or however you envision that. It's, it, the fact is, everybody does this with something, or someone. And, and the language of the New Testament is that there's something or someone that if everything else is wrong in your life, you kind of look at that and go, well, you know what, all is not lost. Life is worth living. I'm not a loser. I still have that. The New Testament would say that's what you rejoice in. That's what you boast in. So he's on to something. And the original 
uh, condition of human beings is not that we were made for toil and for sadness and for depression. Those are all things that came out of the world falling, that the world is now fallen. The world's not as it once was. But the original condition of human beings was that they were simultaneously holy, loved God, loved people, responded to Him the way that we should, holy and happy. And why, why wouldn't they be? When you're hitting on all cylinders for what you're made to do, you're happy. And they were. Have you ever thought about it this way? That the work of redemption is not to make you sadder. It's not to make you more bored. It's not to make you less human. The work of redemption is to return us to what we're supposed to be, ultimately to return us to what we're supposed to be, holy and happy. Now, again, I, I want you to think about this. When Paul, in, this, in, in Romans, when he says we, he's not just talking about human beings in general. Now, sometimes in Romans, he does. He just says this is just the human condition, anybody, anywhere. But here, when he says we, he's talking to the Christians who are receiving this letter, the Christians in Rome. So what he's saying is, what do justified people, what do believing Christians have, and what, how should that express itself? So that, that's what I want to look at, those two things this morning. First off, what do justified people have? Not what do they aspire to, what do they have, whether they feel it or not. And then... What do justified people rejoice in? What do they boast in? Okay? First off, what do they have? And again, very important. What do justified people have, whether they slash we feel it or not? A couple of things. Number one, peace. Now, when I say that word, probably where our minds go first is my feeling of peace, my experience of peace. When the Bible talks about that, it'll use language like the peace of Christ. That's not what Paul says. He says in verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And what does that mean? It means... Whether or not you feel this, whether or not this is experienced, that when a man or woman or child believes in Jesus to say, I, I can't pardon myself. I can't take my guilt away. I'm coming to you with empty hands and saying, have mercy on me. Whatever Jesus does for sinners, please do that for me. That when that happens and God declares us not guilty that there is no longer, I'll use the Bible word, enmity, hostility, war between God and the sinner. And in verses 10 and 11, it doesn't, it doesn't use the word uh, peace. In verses 10 and 11, it's the language of reconciliation, of being reconciled to a God whom we naturally anger. Not because he's a hothead, but because he is invested in the creation that he's made, and we're the ones that attack it. We attack him, 
and we attack each other, and we attack his creation, and it upsets him. And this is amazing, because if you haven't been here for this study, you're at a little bit of a disadvantage right now. Not, it's not, I'm not scolding anybody, but just to say, in the earlier part of the book, how does Paul begin the bad news? He says, the wrath, the anger of God is presently revealed against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of human beings. And then he says this, but if you are justified, you have peace. You have it. And that's interesting because it could be that if you were honest, you would have to admit about yourself that I kind of need God to keep punishing me. Now, it may seem like a weird thing to say, but you know, grace, just undeserved, unearnable favor, is a tough pill to swallow. You know, if, if I can be a believer in Jesus, but kind of hang on to a little bit of a dynamic where if I disappoint him, if I really blow it, then I'll, well, there's all kinds of routes we can go. I'll kind of do penance by feeling horrible for a while. Or I'll do penance by sort of upping my whole Christian life for a while. So, oh man, I really, I really, really was bad. And so I'm going to double my Bible reading and double my prayer. And I'm going I'm I'm to get my hands around this and I'm going to get serious about this. I mean, it, it, as strange as it, seems, as it is to, to say, there's something about us that can kind of need to hang on to him still punishing us. And Paul says, that is not what you have. If you're justified, you have peace. Meaning, when Jesus takes your place and he says, it's finished, it's finished. There is no need for penance when he says it's finished. There is no war. You're reconciled. And then he says this, verse 2, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And I saw more than one uh, commentator, New Testament scholar, say that maybe a better word than access would be introduction. Because access sounds like, all right, there's something over there. If you want to go into it, you can. But it, like, it would be your decision, your energy, your initiative to go in there. But introduction would be like if someone took you and said, hey, let me bring you into this place because I can. And that really, that's more a picture of what Jesus did with sinners is that there's a realm of the grace of God. And really, biblically, it's not so much that we came up to the edge of that realm and went, huh, well, I think that I'll walk in. I think that that would be a smart thing for me to do. That, that Biblically, no, it's more that God took us and said, hey, I'm the only one that can open this door, and I love you, and I'm bringing you in there. And, and Paul says that we stand in it. Uh, there's a jargony kind of thing I've heard more in the last few years. I don't know if people have been saying this for a while, and I just didn't know it. But it's the way people use the word space. Have you heard this? Like, whereas maybe 10 years ago, somebody would have said, all right, uh, like maybe speaking to a group of leaders, business leaders, and say, okay, for those of you who are engaged in, in leadership positions, and now people will say things like, for those of you who occupy the leadership space, have you heard, have you heard that? It's kind of jerk. Yeah. Uh, Maybe I need to start saying it. I don't know. But it's as if Paul says 
there is a space of the grace of God. And for people who are justified, again, whether you feel it or not, the hand of God, because of Jesus, introduced us, brought us into this space, and we stand in it. We live in it. Does that seem real to you? If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, let let me ask you this. When you really disobey God, where do you sense that you are positioned at that point? Where do you sense that you're located, that you're standing? Because our default mode is merit, earning. It's not grace. And if, if your default mode is merit, when you really blow it and you disobey God, you'll think, I'm out of the room. I'm out of the space. And what is Paul saying? Because of the finished work of Christ, we stand in that realm. We stand in that location of the grace of God. We have that whether we feel it or not, but wouldn't it be great to meditate on it so that maybe we kind of feel it? And I am saying we because I constantly lapse back into uh, merit. Well, that's what we have. Why do we rejoice? You've already heard some of it. And, um, and this is an interesting point. The word that's translated rejoice in this passage, it's in the passage three times, is the same Greek verb that earlier in Romans is translated boast. And on one of the Sundays when I was out, when Jake preached, he, he hit this square on, like, what is it about us that we boast about? And in Paul, there's bad boasting and there's good boasting. Bad boasting is when, in some way, some form, we're, we're boasting in human ability, especially our own. Good boasting is to boast in Him. And where did Paul get that? He actually got that from the Old Testament. It says in the prophet Jeremiah, Let him who boasts, boast that he knows me, says God. So three times in this passage... He says, we, we rejoice, we boast. What do we boast about? What do we rejoice in? All right, three of them. Let, let me go in reverse order. Verse 11. He says, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We rejoice in God. Now, look at that and then go back to verse 5. Look at the second part of verse 5 above. It says... God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That is such a rich way to put it, that the love of God, it's, I want to be theologically careful here, it's almost like the love of God is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the love of God, but it's the image of God just pouring Himself, His love into our hearts because justified people are indwelt by His Holy Spirit. Now, that's an awesome, amazing assertion. But as far as our feelings, we might feel like, well, but you know what? When I really blow it, when I just lash out at somebody or I just looking at something on the computer that I 
shouldn't, and I told myself I wouldn't, and I feel yuck, and I feel dirty. I don't feel like I'm filled with, filled with the love of God. And what else does Paul say? Okay, he's saying it. We rejoice in God, just who God is. Look at what, look at what he says next, verse 6. He says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. One of my wife's from-the-crib friends has had um, some really severe back problems. And um, fairly early on in her marriage, she, uh, she had, I guess, her, her worst episode with her back. And she was in the hospital, I think still pretty much a newlywed. And she just, she hurts, and she's down. And she, she's a very funny girl, a woman, very funny personality, super spunky. She's not spunky. She's not funny. She's not fun. She doesn't, um, she, you know, she's not made up. She just, all the, all the props have been pulled away. And she's in the hospital. And she told my wife, how much it meant to her, how loving her husband was then. Like she felt ugly and not fun and unenjoyable, and he really loved her. And she knew, she knew she had that, but it just drove home. He doesn't just love me for what I give. He loves me. That's verses 6 through 8. That... It's not that God said, look, at least be respectable sinners and my son will die for you. He said, while we were weak and sinful, and did you catch this? In verse 6, he says, Christ died for the ungodly. You know, that word has shown up already in Romans. Back in the bad news part. In chapter 1, in fact, when Paul just kind of flips the switch about, all right, we're going to talk about the bad news right now. The first sentence is, the wrath of God is revealed against all the what? Ungodliness. Wickedness of human beings. And here's the same term showing up saying, all right, God is angry about ungodliness, so Christ dies for people. What people? The godly people? He dies for the ungodly. And man, if you want lenses into who God is, put those two verses together in your mind. That our God, Paul's God, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the God who is angry at ungodliness. He's not going to love something that's wretched, that hurts the participants and hurts the recipients. He's angry about it, so he sends the remedy to whom? The people doing it. He sends his sons for the ungodly people doing the things that anger him. That's God. And Paul says, you know, why do we rejoice? Because God is God. There's no God like this who sends the remedy for what upsets him because of love. Then he says this in verse, uh, verse 3. 
second part of verse, uh, excuse me, verse 3 at the beginning. Uh, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. And that term for character means tested character. You've been through tests, and character produces hope. You know, we've got quite a few uh, serious runners in our church. We had a couple of church members that ran the Boston uh, a few weeks ago. And um, they, you know, they know about endurance. They know about tests. I I heard a great quote about... uh, a father and his daughter who were training together for a marathon. They were just something they wanted to do, so they said, let's do it. And they started training. So they get up where it's close to the time of the marathon where you start doing some really long runs. And so maybe they were doing, a, I don't know, like an 18-mile run or a 20-mile run. And it's just horrible. And so they're way into it, maybe 16 or something. And the daughter said to her dad, Dad, tell me again why we're doing this. And her dad said, Honey, we're practicing not quitting. That's character. We're, we're practicing not quitting. Uh, the term that Paul uses here for suffering, it could be specifically suffering just because you're a Christian. Like suffering because you have connotations of knowing Jesus and it, that brings the heat at your workplace or in your family or whatever. But it could be that it's just more generally it's the suffering of living in a fallen world where things are wrong and things go wrong. Physical problems, emotional problems, financial problems, relational problems. Whatever it is, Paul says, you talk about countercultural. We rejoice in those. Why? Because they're so fun. No. That's why they call it suffering. It's not fun. We rejoice in them because God loves us and He only sends it in love to do things. I'm I'm indebted to a a metaphor, I guess, that Tim Keller used. He said that suffering for the Christian is like an intervention. And you know what an intervention is. Uh, someone in, uh, typically in an addiction, some kind of substance abuse, and they're brought in first into a setting where the people who love them the most, closest family, closest friends, surround this person and say, we love you, we're concerned about you, you're hurting yourself, and you can't extract yourself from it. And usually the, the, the goal is to get this person to treatment, get this person to, to, to rehab. And sometimes when the person walks into a setting like that and they realize what's happening, kind of like, you know, the, the game is up, the things that are being said, being exposed like that, being whisked away somewhere, maybe for weeks, maybe for months, feels like hate. Because it's messing with something that's so near and dear to me that's destructive. Sometimes suffering at the hand of God is intervention. It's Him coming. And man, at the moment to us, you know, the addicts, it feels like hate. But what it is is love. It's Him saying, if you do not go through these hard things, and some of them over and over and over, you will not get at these things that are hurting you. 
They won't be exposed. You won't see the ugliness of it. You won't see how it affects other people. And Paul shared in that. That's, that's, that's the Christian experience. And he says, you know what? I'm finally at a point in my life that when suffering comes up on the front porch, I'm not like coming out the door with a shotgun to run it off because it makes me uncomfortable. But to say, in a sense, come on in. I know you're going to like break plates, you know, (laughs) damage my house, scare me. But come in because I've seen why he sends you and what you do. Paul says we rejoice in it. And by the way, if if you're sitting here going, that's a nice thought, but I just don't know how realistic that is. Understand that when Paul talks about suffering, he's not talking about, you know, I had a boss. He's very aggressive with me. I mean, when he's talking about suffering, he's talking about imprisonment, flogging, being stoned. With actual stones. Not controlled substances. Moving on, verse 2. Lastly, he says that through him, that's through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And here's what I want to look at. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And first off, this word hope, hope in the New Testament is not like our hope. The way we use the word hope is sort of, that would be great if, dot, 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 but I don't know, dot, dot, dot. Like, boy, it was sure an ideal Saturday yesterday. I hope we get some more days like that, but we don't know. That's not biblical hope. Hope is certainty about future certainties. And even that invading your thinking and your decision-making and your feelings. It is to know, because of who God is, that these future realities are certain. He says that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What does that mean? Man, this one is challenging. Think about this. When Moses talked to God, face-to-face. There's references to that in the rest of the Bible. That, you know, other people had to talk to God different ways. Moses and God, like friends. When God spoke to Moses, coming away from that experience, his face glowed. His face shone. It was the reflected glory of God. And if that sounds cool, it was not cool to the Israelites who saw it. It was frightening to the Israelites. When Fast forward, when Jesus was up on what we call the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, uh, a cloud came. And that cloud, when you think about the Old Testament, it's not just a cloud from altitude. It's the glory cloud of the presence of God. And Moses appeared with Jesus, and Elijah appeared with Jesus. You've heard the law and the prophets. Humanly speaking, this is the law and the prophets in Jesus. And the gospel writers say that Jesus shone. It was as if 
what's veiled in his humanity for just a little bit, the veil is taken back so that what he is as the second person of the Trinity in all his glory shone on the mountain. And they never forgot it. Well, then fast forward toward the end of the New Testament, and it says that when he appears, meaning when Jesus appears, the second coming, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And there are other scriptures like that. You know, we sing it in Amazing Grace. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining is the sun. And as I say about once a year, for the longest time, I thought those words, when it said bright shining, I thought it, that was a description of there. Like when we've been there 10,000 years in that place that's bright shining is the sun. That's not what it means. It's describing when we have been there 10,000 years. And what, what's, what have we been like? Bright shining is the sun. That... The biblical hope is that glorified people, not because we deserve it, but in the mercy of God, will participate in the glory of God. We'll never be God. He's the creator. We're the creatures. We'll always be creatures. We'll always be needy. But as glorified, needy people, that we will be suffused with the glory of God and man. Can we imagine what that's going to be like? And the answer is no. But like it says in Amazing Grace that I will possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. I think what that means is that cancer cannot touch me now. Depression cannot touch me now. Estrangement with people that I love and care about cannot touch us now. Divisions cannot touch us now. Death cannot touch us now. We are participating in the glory of God. And that's what we hope in. And here's the thing. If those things are nice thoughts, then my, my suggestion to you is uh, get on with your day. Eat your lunch and enjoy the afternoon because this is just fiction. But if this is real, it's a game changer. It's so much of a game changer that a guy that did get beaten and flogged and in prison would sit in the prison cell with the other guys that believed this and sing because it was great. Even the suffering was a source of joy. And I want to leave you with one thought. Just so you'll know, this didn't start with Paul. In the Gospel of Luke, and this is a good word for we who are so busy, and work so hard and are trying to be efficient and productive. There's a passage in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus has sent out 70 people to go heal and talk about the kingdom and cast out demons. And they do it, and they come back, and they're pumped at, wouldn't you be? I mean, if he sent you out and said, cast out demons, you went to some village you've never been in and said, in Jesus' name, come out. That was awesome. And they do that. And they, they come back to Jesus, and, and, and they're excited. And he says, it is exciting, but 
do not rejoice that the Spirit submit to you in my name. Rather, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You know, what, what if the lion's share of our flatness and boredom this week has been that really where we are trying to derive our joy is through what we do and how what we're doing comes across and that the scriptures keep insisting that joy is based safely on what he has already done and what we already possess and what waits for us within the veil. Amen. Let's pray. Father, please make these things real to us if they seem if they seem sort of like pie in the sky and sort of like a nice fiction, if they seem um, like nice religious thoughts, but they don't really land inside of us. Would you give truth traction in our hearts and in our experience? Would you enable us to stop rejoicing in our PR campaigns and what we've done and to rejoice in what we have and what we will have? because of Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.